Uh, so turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. We're moving right through Matthew. And today we're going to take, if I can get there, verses 22 through 32. Some of you have been waiting for this one. Don't know why I got it, but I did. Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 32 says... A demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, it's Jesus, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Isn't that fun? It's a good one. Um, this is the one we're all scared of, right? Like, I've been a pastor for some years now, and I don't think there's any question that I've ever gotten more from people over the time that I've been a pastor than this one. What is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and have I done it? Those are like the two questions that I've heard head and shoulders above any other question from people. Like people are really interested about this. They're really nervous about this, you know, like, like, like is it possible that I've done this thing, right? And so uh, this, this, is, this is what we have today. Um, by the way, uh, if you're into digging into this, this is, a, a, of course, we're going we're gonna to kind of do a drive-by here. You know, there's a lot here. Um, so this is something that really is worth studying on your own. Dig into it a little more. Um, the parallel texts in the synoptic gospels for this account is found in Mark chapter 3. That's where Mark has it. And then also Luke chapter 11. That's where Luke has it. Okay, so all three synoptics share this account. Um, they're really pretty similar. Not, not, not one of them adds something radically different than another one like we sometimes get in the account, so I'm not really going to be bouncing off into those. But for your own study, that's where they are, okay? So let's just get right into it, see if you guys are saved or not. Um, <laughs> we're we're going to play this out this morning kind of like a play. Like I, There's a really good systematic with this text, with this narrative, that I think kind of cleans it up and makes it a little bit more helpful, at least to me. So we're going to do this kind of like a play with uh, acts, that are going on, and, and uh, uh, I came up with six of them. I know that's a bad number. Some of you are like, really, with this text? Like, why didn't you come up with five or seven? It, it's just six. That's what I came up with. Uh, so uh, act number one is going to be the scenario, okay, where Jesus heals a demon-possessed man. Act number two is going to be the interpretation of that scenario by witnesses, people that saw it, 
Okay? Act 3 is the response of the healer to the interpreters. Act 4 will be the reveal. Okay? Basically the explanation of what they're really seeing. Act number 5 will be a truth claim concerning their different interpretations. And then finally, 6 will be a judgment that has to do with the bad interpretation. All right, so this is kind of how we're going to move through it. So act one, we have the, the scenario first. In verse 22, a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute uh, was brought to Jesus. Jesus healed him, and the man spoke and, and saw. Like, it's very matter-of-fact, isn't it? You know, um, it's, it's pretty simple. It's pretty boom, 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 boom. This is what happened. Uh, kind of like it's no big deal, right? You got this demon-oppressed man. He couldn't speak. He couldn't see. He was brought to Jesus. Jesus heals him. He sees and he speaks. Like, just another day at the office you know, for Jesus. Like, this is just kind of what, what he did. I had this, um, I came across this comic, this little comic window a couple weeks ago. It, it made me chuckle. Uh, and it was just a, just a funny little drawing. And at the bottom, it just said, the Texorcist. And um, what it was, was uh, a, a, a little girl sitting on a bed uh, with her head turned backwards, you know, with vomit on the, you know, you know the story, right? And then behind her is a, is a cowboy, a big old guy with a big old cowboy hat and a big old belt buckle. And he's just pointing like this and he's going, go on, get. And it's called the Texorcist. Um, and um, you, I, I thought it was, thank you. I'm glad we have one uh, that actually shares my sense of humor. It was hilarious. And the, and the thing is that it was like no big deal for this big, you know, um, cowboy, you know. To, and he's just like, go on, get, you know, like just commanding this thing. And, and we kind of see, I mean, Jesus is better than a cowboy, don't get me wrong. He's not from Texas, but uh, it, it, it's, it's almost like that when we read through accounts that he just, like, no, like nobody can resist him. Like, there's, there's nothing that's so difficult for him that it's a struggle. When Jesus speaks and he calls something out and he commands something, it must obey. It has no choice. And this is what we're seeing here yet once again. This is what these guys are seeing here yet once again. He, 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 call, he calls them out, and it's, it's, it's simply uh, done. So this man was um, brought to him, and, and it's kind of interesting to consider, like, by who? Right, um, like, like, what was it? Just some sympathetic people uh, that that saw this guy and knew of this guy, or was it family, or was it some of his, you know, his buddies, or was it even the scribes and the Pharisees, or people of the scribes and the Pharisees that brought him? And the and the reason, I mean, that sounds kind of weird, but let's not forget that these guys are trying to crucify Jesus already. Like, we're, like we're already, we're already past like, you know, um, formalities. Like, it is clear what the agenda of the religious leaders is towards Christ at this point. They want to hang this guy. They want to they, they they hang him up. Um, so so they're, they're always trying to produce, we already see this pattern in the Gospels, they're already trying to produce a smoking gun so that they can justify a crucifixion, right? And, and that's really done through blasphemy, if you're religious. Like, like blasphemy allows you to justify a death, right? And so it's, it's like they're trying to find one yet again. And, and back in that day, like demon possession obviously wasn't a, a new thing. But at the same time, when there was a deliverance from demon possession, it was just as often attributed to magic or sorcery being performed as it was to God doing it, okay? This was just the way it was back then, like there, there was this, that's why there's this whole stink over it here. Um, so, so that being said, like whoever brought the guy in, 
obviously it's no contest for Jesus. He handles it, the demon taps out, the man is healed, right? Um, and then before we move on, I just want you to notice what the demon did to the man. Just take note of this, right? Uh, he attacked his ability to see and attacked his ability to speak. And I don't want to read too much into it. I just want to point out that this is interesting on a spiritual level, what this is, right? So, so basically, like, he made the guy blind, and he made him unable to cry out for help or talk. And I think you and I are really seeing that spiritually in a lot of people that are lost today, is they are blind, and they are mute, unable to actually say that which needs to be said, you know, and only God can deliver that. So, so this guy could not see, and he was muzzled by this, by this demon. So we got the scenario here, chapter one, Jesus beats up Satan in public, basically, and, um, and delivers the victim, okay, um, uh, which brought about the following controversy, act two, uh, the interpretation of what happened with the witnesses. We have that in 23 and 24. All the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? It's a good response, okay? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that the man casts out demons, all right? So there's two very different interpretations from those who witnessed the uh, event go down that day. And, it, and it's not like, like when a shooting happens and one person's like, I think I heard two shots, and another person's like, I, I think I heard three shots, like that's kind of in the same ballpark. Like these two interpretations here are completely different. They're, 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 they're polar opposite in their interpretations. I want you to notice that. One group of witnesses are leaning towards, leaning towards this, this being that which has been promised by God in their, in their scriptures, right? Like, like this could be the Messiah. This could be the, the anointed of God. This could be uh, what are they, the, the son of David, they say, right? And then, and then you've got this other group that's like, not only is this not the son of David, but like this is a worker of Satan. Like that, those aren't even the same, right? They, they say uh, it is only by Bilzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Bilzebul um, was a, if you look back into the Hebrew text, the Hebrew scriptures, uh, it was a Philistine God. We all know him because he's sprinkled out throughout our Old Testaments as Baal, B-A-A-L, or Baal. In the Greek, Bilzebul, same guy. And all it means is Lord of the Flies. That's what it means. And um, this is what the Jews would refer to, this, this Philistine God, um, as basically Satan. They would just say, this is Satan, and uh, that's, that's all we're talking about here. comes from that. Bottom line is the two conclusions by these witnesses are not the same. One party's thinking, this man must be of God. The other party is thinking, this man must be of Satan. Same act, witnessed Opposite conclusions. So now Jesus is going to respond to the erroneous interpretation, to the wrong one, okay? Act number three, we have the response of the healer to the interpreter. We find that in 25 through 27. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Okay, um, this is where we can sit back and grab popcorn. This is, this is where uh, it gets good right here. So, so Jesus responds to the belief that he has cast out the worker of Satan by the power of Satan, and he does it by using straight logic, right? 
Like a lot of times Jesus will go into something cryptic or mystical or, um, you know, kind of spiritually discerned. Not with this. He wants these, he wants these guys to come along with him. Or he actually wants to come along with them. Like, hang on, let's like talk about this for a minute, right? So he responds logically. He puts the cookies on the bottom shelf so that these guys know exactly what it is that he's saying, right? So he's reasoning with them. And so Jesus, in a way, he's kind of like, okay, like, let's, let's think about this. Let's think about this together for a minute, shall we? Like, because I'm pretty sure that we all know that a kingdom divided against itself will ruin itself. We do know, we do know that, right? Like, we, we've seen it. We've heard of it. We've experienced it, right? Um, I used to play soccer growing up, ASO, Southern California. It's just what you did if you were a kid growing up in Southern California, um, and uh, there was one year when I was younger that we had, we had a special needs kid on our team. And um, this kid had a foot on him. And when he was put in, he was really good at putting the ball in our goal. <laughs> he didn't care which direction we, like his team was going. This, he's on our team, but, but he was really good at putting the the ball, and, and, and it's kind of like, this is how, this is kind of the ridiculousness that Jesus is actually like alluding to, that he said, this is like having a team that's scoring against itself. It's really hard to win that way, uh, if, you, if you ever experience it. It's, it's not easy to get, to get victories. Um, it, it is a simple fact that a kingdom, a city, a house, a marriage that is against itself will not Stand. It will do itself in. It cannot survive the schism because it's warring with itself. I don't know how many times we as pastors get a call into the office once a marriage has gone bad. And the, and the fact is, once we get there, the marriage is already beyond gone, going bad. They've already basically determined within each other that a divorce, basically a divorce has already happened. Someone's already pulled the pin on the grenade. The grenade's already exploded. And they want us somehow miraculously to walk into the room and pick up the shrapnel and try to put the, thing, put the toothpaste back in the, and we can't. Like, it's, it's already done. And no matter where that started in that marriage or how it started in that marriage, the bottom line for all of them is at some point they ceased to be for each other any longer, those people. That's the problem. I don't, I don't, I don't know, uh, again, where it started or how it started or who it started with, but the fundamental breakdown of a marriage is that they're no longer for each other. Every single time that I go into pre-marriage counseling with a couple, this is exactly what I focus on the most. You need to remind yourself every single day that you are for this person, and that person needs to remind themselves they're for you. It's so easy for us to be against each other when you're doing life together, and you're getting to know each other, and sometimes you guys have disagreements on. It's so easy for us to be against each other. We need to be reminded constantly that we're for each other because if we don't remain for each other, we will kill it. This is just common sense. This is just life truth with about anything, and, and Jesus is, is making this point. So he's stating the obvious to these guys. Look, like, if Satan's casting out Satan like he's divided uh, against himself, and if he's against himself, like, he's no threat. He's, he's really no threat. He won't be victorious because he's already doing himself in. Like, this is really interesting, fellows, you know. Uh, he goes on in 27 to say, furthermore, if I'm casting out demons by Bilzebul, for Bilzebul, what's that say about your kids when they do it? This is a diss. This is, this is heavy. He just shot a bullet into these guys by doing this here. Um, 
So Jesus is basically making their accusation by doing this a little more personal for their consideration. Because if only the power of Satan can cast out the satanic, then their own offspring, in doing so or when they do it, are working for Satan as well. That's basically what's being said. And, and like some, some of these guys connected to the Jewish religious sects along with their offspring did and would dabble in the specialty of exorcism. It wasn't, again, completely unusual at that time. Not only that, some of them, due to their arrogance, would learn about demons and the power needed to cast them out the hard way. Anyone familiar with Acts 19? The sons of Sceva, the seven sons of Sceva. It's one of the funniest, all right, it's not funny, but it kind of is funny. You know what I mean? The seven sons of Sceva. So like Paul's in Ephesus, and Paul at this point is just a power station. The dude is just glowing with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is just coming out of this guy. Everything that he's around in the name of Jesus is being healed and being transformed. Like it is crazy to the point to the point to where people are even stealing his handkerchief, right? Or, or like, like taking a piece of clothing off of him and then running it back to a family member to be healed. And they're being healed. Like that's how, that's how crazy God was working through Paul in the name of Jesus at that time, right? And he's casting out demons in the name of Jesus. So there's this Jewish religious priest named Sceva that had seven sons. And the sons are like, we want to do this stuff too. Like, this is pretty cool. And, and our dad's a priest and like, let's go. So, so one day they all go to this man's house that they knew was demon possessed, right? And you can see him just walk, if you were witnessing, you can just see him walking up to this house like with the Rocky theme going. You know what I mean? Like they're just all that and more. And, and they go inside and they command this, this demon to come out of this dude. And this demon-possessed man looks at them and he says, like, I know who Jesus is, and I know who Paul is, but I have no idea who you guys are. And he beats them up right there on the spot and rips their clothes. They go running out of the house naked and beaten. It's, like, so great. It's so good, right? Um, and, and, but, the, but they thought they had something. They thought that it was this formula, and you can just throw this name around that this other guy's throwing around, and that that's kind of the, the, the secret handshake to making a trick happen. And it's not. They learned like a heavy, heavy lesson that day. Like so, so you couldn't just walk around casting out demons because you felt like it or because you thought you were rad or because you had a religious dad. It didn't work like that. You had to be anointed by God with the spirit of God in order for any demon to sit up and pay attention to you. And Jesus, they paid attention to him. They paid attention to him. Having said that, water. I want to just mention this on the side while we're here. When it comes to Satan, for the believer, I think there's two stupid mistakes that we can make. Um, one is that we can regard him as nothing, and the other is that we can regard him too much. We tend to fall into one of those extremes when it comes to Satan and it comes to the devil. First, we can, we can live and we can act as though we can talk to him and we can command him and we can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with him. And I'm sorry, you can't. 
you, you, just, you just can't and you shouldn't. Um, e- even in the book of Jude, we see the strongest created being, Michael, saying that he doesn't even go toe-to-toe that way with Satan. Okay? Um, so, like, why should we think we can? <laughs> we, we, we can't. He's above our pay grade, but he's not above God's pay grade. He's not above God's pay grade. So, so the other side is that we can regard him uh, too much. We can think that he has free reign over us. We can think um, and, 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 uh, as if he um, affects our lives and our thoughts um, in every way. We can live our lives as if he's um, around every corner and in every shadow and under every rock to conquer and to defeat us, right? Like, like we can live in a state of perpetual fear and anguish as if he act, has active dominion over us, and he doesn't. Satan doesn't. Because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. This has already been taken care of. This has already been settled, right? He who is in us is greater than he who is in the world every day, all the time. Even in your weak moments, even on your bad days, God doesn't have weak moments or bad days. He's already defeated the evil one, okay? Jesus has already expelled Satan from your life and from my life. You are not his property. Um, In fact, you are wearing a shirt in the unseen realm that says property of Jesus. So that means everybody else that's not of Christ has to keep their hands off you. You are claimed. That's the team you are on, right? So, so we, the point is we need to stop paying attention to him uh, in our personal lives, which has already been conquered and plundered by the stronger man, which is where Jesus goes next, right? Uh, act number four, the reveal. Verses 28, 29. If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. No matter how many times I read that phrase, I get chills. That's an insanely deep, profound, strong phrase. If you see this, what you just saw, the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's heavy. Says in 29, or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. So Jesus is basically saying, like, consider that maybe like Satan's not at work at all in me right now, but rather the Spirit of God is at work in me right now. Like maybe, maybe that's what you're seeing. And if it be the Spirit of God, that then then what you are witnessing is the kingdom of God come upon you. It has arrived. It is in front of you. It is in your midst, right? Um, There's a lot of argument. There's a lot of debate. There's a lot of talk about the kingdom of God and what exactly it is and what it is and all that stuff. And so I'm just going to like shoot a couple really quick shots. Uh, What is the kingdom of God? Uh, It is that place in which God rules and reigns and resides over. Okay? Where is the kingdom of God? Wherever the spirit of God is exercising full authority over all that is. And when is the kingdom of God? It is now, and it is not yet. That doesn't help, does it? You're welcome. That's why it's a debate. Jesus wants these guys to make no mistake that what they are seeing is the Spirit of God subduing and exercising full power and authority over all, all that they think they know and understand in what currently exists. 
Jesus is saying, what you just saw is not a manifestation of the kingdom of Satan at work. It is a manifestation of the kingdom of God at work. Um, In fact, what you are seeing is a strong man being subdued by a stronger man. I love this part. I love this this analogy that Jesus uses here. Um, And and though it's an analogy, it's not cryptic. It's not mysterious. Again, um, it's very simple. It's very clarifying. He's describing a break-in. <laughs> I love this. He's describing a break-in, right? Like, he, he's basically saying to them, like, you, you know what you're seeing when you see me expelling demons? You're seeing a mutiny. You're seeing a mutiny happen. You're seeing a takeover happen. You're seeing a changing of occupancy go down. You're seeing an eviction take place, Right? Like, like Jesus is cleaning Satan's house. He's removing the squatter and taking his property back. That's what's going on here, and that's what Jesus is saying. But, but Satan's not happy about it, right? Like, he's not getting down with this. Like, he's not just going to step aside, right, and be like, hey, well, while you do that and you ruin me and you take everything that I thought was mine, like, can I make you a cup of coffee? Like, we wouldn't do that if someone broke into our house. You know what I'm saying? Like we would resist. At the very least, we'd pick up our phones and call emergency, right? Like someone's here trying to come in and take, like someone's trespassing, right? So, so you need to tie that person up if it's going to be successful, right? <laughs> like you need, to, you need to bind them. So Jesus frames this thing like a break-in. And, and, and if someone's breaking in to take over that which is currently occupied, then the one breaking in is going to meet some resistance, if you're going to break in and take over someone's pad, you've got to tie them up first to ensure that it goes as smooth as possible. That's what Jesus is doing when he's expelling demons. He's tying up Satan, right? However, the only way this is going to work is if the one who is breaking in is stronger than the one resisting. That's the only reason it's got, that's the only way it's going to be successful. If the one that's breaking in is stronger than the one who's Um, resisting. And Jesus is telling us that he indeed is the stronger one. I'm going to give you a bonus real quick too, just something to think about. This actually has nothing to do with anything. Um, But while we're on this text, like a lot of you are interested in eschatology. A lot of you are interested in end time stuff. We talk about the millennium. There's a couple different views, okay, on but there, there's pre-tribbers, there's, there, there, there's pre-mills, there's post-mills, there's all-mills. When we say all-mill, that, that literally just means no uh, literal period of time. It's, it's a long period of time. It's not a definite period of time. That's all that all mill means. Now, what defines the millennial period and why we get so many different views is it's, it's actually characterized by this thing in Revelation chapter 20 called the binding of Satan, that Satan is bound for a thousand years. That's where we get the thousand year or the millennial thing, okay? All millennialists who believe this is not a, a definite amount of time, but just a long period of time, will point to what we're looking at right now. This analogy of Jesus coming in and binding Satan and say, look at when this happened. This isn't happening in the future. This happened at Christ's first advent. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm amillennialist, so don't get all crazy on me. I'm just saying this is, this is the thinking. And you can kind of see where they get that, is they can look at this text and go, when he came the first time, he bound Satan. That's especially true and clarified when he goes to the cross, right? And then rises and conquers death, right? 
So a lot of the amillennialists will say, we are in that period. We are in the millennium. Just, that's a bonus. You know, have fun with that. Do whatever you want with it. Go follow that rabbit hole. All right. Um, again, Satan is not on the same level as Jesus at all. I mean, just understand that here. Do we see that here? We can agree on that. Satan is not on the same level as Jesus at all. Um, Act 5, the truth. Verse 30 says, Whoever's not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. This is, this is to me, really the crux of the subject and the text. I think it gets overlooked because we think blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, unpardonable sin, that gets all our attention. We get all crazy on that. This actually kind of is telling you what it is. <laughs> this is kind of what it is, right? Um, what Jesus means here in verse 30 is nobody's neutral. Nobody on this earth is neutral. Nobody. No one who's ever lived is non-affiliated. You remember, oh, brother, where art thou? We have to do this because it's one of our greatest movies. If you haven't seen it, like repent, go home today, <laughs> pop something, put it on, right? You've got, the, you've got like this point in the movie where like uh, they're sitting in a car uh, and, and Everett, like they, they pick someone up and Everett kind of says, you know, it's like, like Del Mar's just been saved and Tommy just sold his soul to the devil and I'm unaffiliated. And he's like super proud of himself that he's unaffiliated. Uh, no, no, nobody, nobody on this earth is unaffiliated. No one ever sits in a position that is outside of ownership. Nobody. Everybody has one of two dads. It's either Satan or it's God the Father. Everybody at all times has a dad and it's one of those two. In fact, Jesus is going to go on to tell these guys who their father is um, because uh, Brent next week, he's going to take 33 down. It's, it's, a, it's a direct continuation of what we're in right now right? Um, and, and in verse 34, he says, you brood of vipers. That's what Jesus calls it. And so when Jesus says, you brood of vipers, he's saying, your daddy is a snake. No, I'm serious. Your dad's a snake. That's what he's telling him. Oh yeah, you do have a father, but it's, it's this one, not this one. Crazy stuff. Nobody's neutral. You are not neutral. I am not neutral. Our kids are not neutral. Our parents are not neutral. Nobody's neutral. Um, every human being is either with Jesus or against Jesus, which determines whether God the Father is with you or against you. That's it. And then, and then Jesus throws in some farming language here in terms of like being for or against him. Basically, he's saying this is what it looks like if you're for or against me. He says that you're either gathering, which is to be for him, or you're scattering which is to be against him. In other words, you're either part of doing what Jesus is doing or you're not, or you're a part, you're, you're a part of opposing what Jesus is doing. That's it. One, one of the two, one or the other. And it's not hard to see where these guys were falling, right? Every time we see the Pharisees, it's not hard to see that they were bumping up against, responding against, pushing against everything that Jesus was doing, right? So they, they were, they're scattering, Right, And so as harsh as it may sound, as narrow as it may sound, as black and white as it may sound, Jesus is once again proclaiming exclusivity here as to him being the only right side to be on in this world. 
he is the only right side. Always do not lead up. Jesus Christ leads up. He is the way, the truth, and the life, no matter how good all the other options sound, how inspirational they sound. Jesus is it. There's, there's not a million ways up the mountain to get to the top. There is one, and it's through the blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is of the Father. Okay, So this is, again, exclusive um, language here that Jesus is, is using. And then finally, we, we get to the moment we've all been waiting for, uh, act number six, uh, the judgment. And this is found in 31 and 32, which says, therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. A few questions here, okay, is how I kind of want to do this. Um, number one, what is this, obviously? Um, number two, can we even do this? Number three, have you done this? And then number four, why do you even care? Okay, there, there, there's the question. That's how we're going to approach these two verses. So first, what is this? Well, in order for us to answer what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit or the unpardonable sin, we only need to look as far as what just occurred in this text. It is not a mystery. It is not a mystery. The answer is in plain sight here. These people just saw Jesus exercise power over a demon and then attributed it to the power of Satan. That's it. That is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, right? Um, that's the sin. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is what these guys did to Jesus and the Spirit that day. This is where the account in the Gospel of Mark actually helps us immensely in confirming this because Mark just comes right out and says it. Did you know that? It's funny to me that this is such a mystery to us because Mark actually comes out and clearly defines it at the end of his account. Listen to this. Mark 3, 28, 30. Mark says, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. He just says it. That's where it, it's, it's saying that Jesus has an unclean spirit, that the, the spirit coming out of Jesus and working through Jesus is an unclean spirit. That's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Right? Now, it is important for us to acknowledge this here, that when these guys said this about the Holy Spirit to Jesus, it doesn't appear that they were just having a moment. I want you to notice this. I want you to notice their disposition. It doesn't appear that they're just having a moment, right? Um, like, like this is something that accidentally slipped, the statement just like accidentally slipped in a moment of anger or a moment of frustration or a moment of vulnerability or a moment of doubt. It appears that when they said this, they knew exactly what they were saying. This is key. They said it because they meant it. You guys with me? They said it because they really believed this to be true. This is key. And if they really believed this, is, this to be true, then they really didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God and their only hope. 
So again, we can actually loop it all the way back to unbelief. This is an issue of unbelief. This is their position. This is their position, guys, on Jesus. This is their conclusion on Jesus. This is their truth claim concerning that which is working in and through the Son of God, that he's unclean, that he's not of the Father, he's of the other guy. Okay, that's the claim, which brings us to question number two. Can we even do this? This is a weird one, but again, I I mean, I got to talk about it. It is a little bit valid to think about. Can we even do this? Because some suggest that this specific sin actually requires the bodily presence of Jesus on earth, performing these miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit in order to even be able to commit it. Just something to think about. Read through all of them and see what you come up with. If this is true, this is something that was unique to them at that time. Okay? Um, Listen once more to the statement by Mark. Listen again. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness because they were saying, he, who? Jesus, has an unclean spirit. Just interesting, right? So um, even though the nature of the blasphemy that's being warned against and talked about um, is against the Holy Spirit himself, the scenario seems to be one of the spirit working through and in the person of Christ at the same time. Something to to think about. There are two reasons why I like this interpretation, okay? Uh, They're both selfish, of course. Uh, One, that means it's impossible for me to commit it, and I like that. Uh, I'm going to sleep better, you know, knowing that it's not something I've done. I've never seen Christ in front of me on earth doing the things uh, that that he was doing so that I had to make a judgment call like this, you know, so I kind of like it for that reason. Um, Number two, it it would mean that every time I witness the Spirit do something now, that I don't understand or like, and so I attribute it to the other guy, I'm okay. This is where it gets kind of scary. It's like if, it, if, if it's not exclusive, it, if, it, if it doesn't mean that it requires the bodily presence of Jesus with the Spirit working through him, and it's something we can do now, think about the implications of that. How many times have you ever heard somebody speak gibberish in a worship service or get on the floor and flop around like a fish? I I don't know if you've ever experienced that. I have. And when I look at that, I'm going, that's not of God. That's of the other guy. What if it is? Am I committing blasphemy? If if it's true that that all it is is that we can see the Spirit do something through someone and say, nope, that's not of God, then we're all in trouble. We have all committed or will commit at some point blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is unpardonable. So I, 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 I don't think we can take it that far. No, this, is, this directly has to do with a truth claim of who Christ is and who he was from and who was working through him, right? It's, it's something a little bit different than that. Um, so question number three, we're about to wrap this up. Um, have you done this? Have you, have you done this? Well, um, I, I really think we just need to answer that one by jumping to the final question. Uh, why do you care, right? Why do you care? if you've done it or not. I mean, that's kind of valid to consider. Uh, why does it even matter? Like, why do you care what Jesus thinks, right? Um, in fact, what are you even doing here? <laughs> like, what are you even doing here? Now, I get that not everybody that fills the seats in churches is saved. There's a lot of reasons why we show up. But I do think, regardless of that, 
the majority of this room this morning knew that they were coming to a gathering of worshipers who worship the Son of God, who worship the, the great salvation that we have been given through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. You came to a worship service. Why do you even care why you even here, right? You care because you don't think that Jesus worked, hopefully, as a result of Satan, but of God, right? I think back to my pre-Christian days when I was completely lost and completely sideways and completely buried in the darkness of my sins and my selfishness. And even then, in my darkest moments, as a non-believing self-lover and God-hater, I never once when I thought of Christ, thought that he was of Satan and not the Father. I, I never once thought that. Um, I always knew that Christ was of God, that he was the second person of the Trinity, and that he was for me, right? Um, I, I never once, even in those darkest times, looked at him and thought, um, him and Satan are in cahoots. Like, they're just, they're, they're pals doing the same thing. It sounds kind of weird to think about it that way, doesn't it? But that's really, that's really what this is. That's really what this is. I do care about what God thinks of me. I do care about what God thinks of me. I do care because I do believe salvation is found in Christ alone. I do believe that. And I, and I do believe that he worked and he lived by God alone. And, and I want that. I need that. How about you? That right there, that confession right there, that honest confession, that sincere confession tells me everything I need to know when my head starts taking me sideways. That is a real confession that I have. That is a real ongoing disposition, conviction that I have that Christ is of God and he is for me. I believe that, which is why I'm here doing what I do. Um, let's just put it to you straight. Just answer, you can just answer this question to yourself so that it can all be cleared up once for all here today. Do you attribute the work of Jesus to the work of Satan? Go ahead and answer that. That's it. That's as far as you need to go. If you can honestly and confidently answer no, then you have not committed in the unpardonable sin or the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So you may exhale, right? Now, having said all that, we're really going to end now. Having unpacked all that, I'd like for us to revisit a phrase as we close, a beautiful statement of absolution and hope that Jesus also makes here that seems to get lost and overlooked due to the subject matter. And that phrase is found back in the first part of verse 31. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. That one's easy to easy, easily lost in this whole text, right? In other words, outside of this one thing that the Pharisees and the scribes did that day with Jesus, everything else that man has done and can do and will do has a remedy. This is good news. It has a remedy because I'm pretty sure I haven't done this one thing that Jesus is referring to here, but I know that I've done most of the other ones. You know what I'm saying? I simply have. Now, I don't want to trip on the one sin that I haven't committed. 
I want to be amazed at the thousands of sins that I have committed that he has paid for in full. This is why we're here, right? This is why we come to a worship service of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's because of this. I, I don't want to trip out and live in fear the rest of my life that I might have done the one. I want to live in amazement that he has forgiven all the ones I know I have done and even ones that I, I've never even understood or acknowledged, right? Like, like he's paid them in full. Let that breathe life into your soul. Let that be a pillow to lay your head on. Sorry, didn't mean to hit you with that. Let that be a pillow to lay your head on because there is no shortage of ways. There is no shortage of sins. There is no shortage of things that I can point at on a daily basis in my life that condemn me, right? Where I can look at those on any day and go, God can't possibly love me for this one. God can't possibly forgive me for this one. And the text is saying, Jesus is saying, I have. I've accounted for that one too. I've paid for that one too. I bled for that one too. Right? Um, let, me just, let me just read Colossians 3 real quick. Not the whole thing. Listen, listen to this. Listen to this. You and you, all of us, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. You, God has made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And when he nailed it to the cross, this is your rap sheet we're talking about. This is the rap sheet that you've had and that may exist right now and that goes into the future. He took that past tense, nailed it to the cross, okay, canceling it. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. When he did so, he disarmed he disarmed the rulers and the authorities, and he put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Christ. This is the defeat of Satan, the reality of the defeat of Satan when Jesus came the first time and lived a sinless life and died a sinner's death and broke free from the grave, living again, and then ascending all for you and I. He disarmed. He basically said, lay down your weapons. To everything that used to have sway over us. He said, you're done. They're not yours anymore. This is where he took his, took his property and he plundered the house of Satan, right? It looked like Satan won in Gethsemane, but Jesus buried him at Calvary, people. Buried him at Calvary. It is done and it is finished. Also that you and I can be free, forgiven of all things. Today, tomorrow, next week until the day that he brings us home, because he's faithful to make his righteous work stand. You and I are not. He is. This is where there is great hope. This is where there is great victory. And this is what Jesus purchased and bought on our behalf. Crazy text, not so bad, though. You and I have nothing to be afraid of if Christ is all you have. You know what I'm saying? Lord God, thank you for doing what you did in my place. Um, I should have been the one up there, and even that wouldn't have been enough. 
And I thank you that you didn't just produce the possibility of me being saved when you hung on the cross. I, I thank you that you took my name to that cross. And you took every sin, past, present, and future in my rap sheet to that cross with that name. And so I thank you for your unfathomable love and concern for a sinner like me. I thank you that there's nobody and nothing that can separate me now from your love. That there is, in fact, a jersey that I have that is property of you. And so I thank you for accomplishing and solidifying all of that, God. We praise your name. And it's in your name that we are saved, Jesus, and that we pray. Amen.